The primary purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. The views, information, or opinions expressed by hosts or guests are their own. Neither the show nor any of its content should be construed as investment advice or as a recommendation to buy or sell any particular security. Security-specific information shared on this podcast should not be relied upon as a basis for your own investment decisions. Be sure to do your own research. The podcast hosts and participants may have a position in the securities mentioned personally through sub-accounts and or through separate funds and may change their holdings at any time. Welcome to This Week in Intelligent Investing, where we examine timely and timeless investing topics to help you become a better investor. Enjoy authentic, unscripted discussion featuring Phil Ordway, Elliot Turner, and other thought-leading investors, brought to you by MOI Global. And now, here's your host, John Michalczewicz. Welcome to This Week in Intelligent Investing. Great to have you with us for another episode. It's a pleasure to welcome my co-hosts, Phil Ordway and Elliot Turner. Phil, let's uh, get started with you. Thanks, John. So we're right here in the middle of holiday gift-giving season, and most people are being bombarded with advertisements. And you know, a lot of them are centered around brands. And that has had me thinking, I've been thinking about this on and off for a long time now, about whether the future of brands is going to look anything like the past. And I have been increasingly of the opinion that brands are kind of a fading artifact. And so I'll, I'll go into some points here and some there's, there's a lot of nuance on this topic. So I, I don't have a strong conclusion and I'm looking to you guys to see what you think, and, and hopefully you can push back and, and provide some clarity. But a few things have really stood out to me in recent years that have that have made me think that investing behind certain types of brands, and I'll make some distinctions between a couple different types, but certain types of brands, particularly the types of brands that used to be successful a decade or two ago, uh, is increasingly dangerous. And so, you know, things that have really caught my attention in the past, let's say, five years are the inherent struggles of big consumer packaged good companies or big food companies. I mean, notably Kraft Heinz is one that that really was an eye-opener for me because, you know, it involves some iconic American and global brands and the greatest investor of all time and a really smart financial and, and strategic partner in 3G. And it just really didn't go very well. And so I, I, as I was kind of digging into that, you know, that that kind of made me wonder. The other was, I think it was probably two or three years ago when when Costco's white label brand Kirkland became you know one of the biggest standalone brands so to speak it, it's not a brand in the traditional sense but it's definitely become its own brand now that became one of the biggest brands in the world uh, from a standing start of nothing you know 15 or 20 years ago that's pretty mind-boggling and this is I think I think it was two years ago that there was a, a big phenomenon around this time of year with the Amazon coat which was like this basically white label coat that people were buying and wearing as a, as a genuine fashion item in, I think it was either the winter of 2019, it might've been winter of 2018, I'm not sure. But you know that was always kind of the last purview I thought of, of brands, which would be fashion, right? I mean, a lot of people, I'm not one of them, but a lot of people would only want to wear a certain label, even if you can't see the label, right? Because it confers some sort of status, uh, you know, luxury goods remain I think one of the few areas where brands are pretty protected, right? I mean, I think people are willing to pay up for for Gucci or something like that, uh, a Rolex watch, despite the fact that you could get a very high quality watch from a number of brands. I think that remains true that luxury is something that people are willing to purchase where they're willing to purchase a status symbol. But if they're willing to buy a coat and, you know, the rise of Amazon basics with all sorts of, you know, uh, apparel items, you know, that, that has to be a bad sign for Nike and, uh, Adidas and Under Armour and lots of other companies like that, right? And, you know, again, a, another example that really hit me over the head was there was a comment at the Berkshire annual meeting probably 20 years ago, might have been 25 years ago, where Charlie Munger, they were talking about Gillette. And Charlie Munger said, you know, I, I shave every morning. I'm, I'm dragging a sharp piece of metal across my face. I'm just never going to save a little bit of money by going with a cheaper option. It's just literally never going to happen. And you wake up a couple of decades later and Gillette has taken a little bit too much price and maybe gotten a little bit complacent and a bunch of people come in, Dollar Shave Club, Harry's, 
Cox, uh, again, Costco and Kirkland started their own white label razor to where it was actually way cheaper and where these brands really did come out of nowhere and create a huge problem for Gillette. And so I think that's kind of where I've gotten with this is that, you know, basically there's never been a better time in the history of the world to start a, a branded products company, right? You can have an extremely cheap website, a Shopify account, you know, so a little bit of marketing that can be done almost for free, particularly via social media, and you're off and running. So if there's never been a better time to create a branded products company, that it has to be bad for incumbent companies, and it has to widen the distribution of winners and losers. So I think it's really, really dangerous. Another implication for me is that there's just going to be fewer lasting relationships, right? I mean, if you were a Gillette customer for 10 years, you know, maybe you're now a Dollar Shave customer, uh, or a Harry's or whatever, but you're probably not going to have that same multi-decade or even multi-year relationship because, again, for reasons I just mentioned, the odds are that somebody's going to come along with a cheaper, better, newer, cooler, fancier option, and it's going to steal your business away. And that's why I think I, I find things like, and we've talked about this uh, unrelated, but where Peloton's assumption that they're going to have a 13-plus-year customer relationship and their subscriber base is so ridiculous. I mean, I think that's dumb for reasons that pertain to, to human trends around fitness. But I, I just think it's very, very unlikely that anything but maybe the top 5, 10, maybe at most 20% of consumer companies are going to have that kind of 13-year relationship because people are just going to come along and attack your brand much more frequently. So I think there's a lot of value to be destroyed in branded companies due to either excessive prices that they're raising, you know, they're, they're taking too much price basically, or there's just a lot of creative destruction. Um, at the same time, it does raise the value of recurring or subscription models for brands where, you know, you, you do have some sort of need or want and the, the branded company fulfills that and you're willing to sign up for it. And I think that has been more than reflected in market prices. Again, the risk that I would have there as an, as an equity investor would be that you're overestimating the duration of those the of those subscriptions. But you know, to the extent they're there, I mean they're extremely valuable. Um, so I don't I don't discount that. But if you're overpaying for it, just like anything else, there can be a, a lot of value destroyed there as well. So I think where I've shaken out on this is I really don't have too much concern where the brand is built around either a low cost or low price proposition or where you're, you're trusting the brand to make your decision for you. So again, this would apply to something like Costco, Target, Walmart, whatever, where you're saying, if I go Amazon, for sure, where you're saying, if I go to this company, I know that they're going to be offering me just about the best value I can possibly find. Uh, likewise, I would not be worried about a brand where what they're offering is basically the right kind of selection. Because as we've had a proliferation of brands and consumer choice, you get tied up in the paradox of choice, right? Where you just have too much choice and you can't make a decision. I mean, I find myself having that dilemma all the time when I'm looking at even just Amazon, for example, where it's like, there's just too many things to choose from. I recently had to buy a new computer. And because I'm like this, I spent way too much time looking at my options. And, you know, I could get discounts through uh, direct through Dell or whatever, I could certainly go to Amazon. I ended up doing it through Costco because they only had a handful of options. And no matter which way I looked, they were the cheapest, right? So there's a lot of value in only having like two or three choices to look at instead of, you know, unlimited choices like there are on Amazon. So I think a curation uh, focus can be a, a really defensible brand or, or likewise, I, I do think luxury status goods will continue. Those those brands will continue. I would just be a little more nervous than I would have been, I would have ever imagined being 10 or 20 years ago that somebody's going to come along and knock that off. And particularly as it pertains to fashion where there's not also a performance element, right? So it's just always struck me that it's kind of odd that um, something that can be easily reproduced or where the fashion may change like a purse or a handbag as opposed to like a Ferrari, right? Because the, a Ferrari is clearly a luxury good, but it's also a very difficult thing to make. It's a little bit easier to make a purse or a handbag or something like that. So, and, and I will say, I mean, look, I, I do think there are, there are winds of change blowing there too. I mean, there's obviously always been a huge markup for the Tiffany brand and, and kind of a double markup because a lot of what Tiffany sells is diamonds and diamonds are an artificially inflated market with the 
De Beers cartel, you know, artificially restricting supply to keep the price way, way, way higher than it would ever be. And I think you're starting to see potentially some erosion there where younger buyers are saying, well, screw it, I'll just buy a cubic zirconia or a, a, a artificial diamond that was created in a laboratory and it'll be absolutely pure and won't have any of the geopolitical stigmas attached and that sort of thing. So I, I do think there's some risk there, but on the whole, those are the areas where I'd be less worried. Where I'd be really worried is brands where the historic value was derived by the uh, supposition that it was just a quality item, a non-luxury fashion good or apparel good, uh, some sort of non-specific food company. So that where, where it's not a flavor, right? Because you can't really replicate a flavor. So uh, Coke may have it, Coca-Cola may have its own problems, right? Sugary carbonated chemical drinks like that may have their own problems, but it's not because of the brand issue per se. I mean, I'd be much more worried about like, you know, a yogurt company, we've seen plenty of those get attacked or, you know, something where, I mean, we've had 9 million mattress and pillow companies. I mean, that sort of thing, right? Where there's really not an easy way to distinguish between them based on performance. And it's really just about like a low minimum acceptable quality where I think these companies could be really attacked quite easily. So, um, you know, I, I think it's fascinating because this has all been portended over the last 10, 20, 30 years. And it's a way that Buffett actually made a huge part of his fortune going back to the 1970s was that he realized earlier than everybody else, as he always does, that investing through the income statement is an enormously powerful way to conduct business. And that return on tangible assets is really what matters in a lot of businesses. And you know, when you get into these non-capital intensive operations, I mean, this is enormously important. Uh, but again, I, there's a ton of operating leverage in most of these businesses too. So if the, if the top line starts to stagnate or slip, things can really get ugly in a hurry. So I'll leave it at that. What do you guys think? I mean, am I overstating the concern? Am I misdiagnosing, misdiagnosing the characteristics of the two categories in terms of who's in trouble and who's not? And what do you guys think overall? Yeah, you know, I think this is an awesome topic. And John, correct me if I'm wrong. I think it was the lattice work in New York in 2017 where Josh Tarasoff and Tom Russo had a conversation about like some of these very questions. And there were, I think, several other panels then about uh, answering these questions. And I thought it was fantastic. You know, when it comes to brands, I think you're breaking it down pretty much the right way. A lot of what they did was got you distribution. They solved search problems and certain kinds of brands were about establishing prestige or quality. And the world is just fundamentally different how people search and seek out those things. And the advantage of distribution on a supermarket shelf, well, it still matters because people still go in person into stores, but it matters less than it formerly had, especially online. Like the idea of a brand is collapsing to mean something very different. But there is a little bit of a flip side because even some of these, um, when you think about marketing, especially with the rise of digital, you break down the world into performance and brand spend. And brand spend is that classic kind where like the Don Drapers of the world say, you know, we know half of our spend, our advertising doesn't work, but we don't know which half. And at the end of the day, um, performance gave you solutions where you could actually target to specific people who you know should be in your customer base and measure exactly how it works. Yeah, brand spend still has a pretty important role to play. And I was on a call just, a, I think it was like a week and a half ago with a DTC company and a DTC marketing specialist. And they said one of the interesting things about CTV in particular is you see this convergence of brand and performance, where some degree of what you spend might be about performance, but the idea of being on TV elevates the brand from the perception of cheap to something that has status and credibility. And that hadn't necessarily existed in the DTC world. So you could pursue performance and it works, but at a certain scale, you do want to aim and strive for giving legitimacy. And I think it's becoming increasingly true as the curation problem on sites like Amazon, where not only is it like if you search for shorts, you might see a thousand options and you have no clue what it is, 
But I once ordered paper towels and got, you know, a bunch of bounty that were scotch taped together. So like the integrity of product isn't necessarily the same too. And I think there's a degree of skepticism that people still have about what they find online. So if you are capable of spending to advertise brand, that level of prestige matters. Now, that's very different than the idea of that beautiful blue box from Tiffany's, not the same sort of prestige that you're selling. Uh, but I do think there's a role to play for brand. I think it's about how you sell yourself. I think there's increasingly a role to play for tapping into certain kinds of zeitgeist. So part of the absolution of brands in key areas is not so much that brand itself is not effective. It's that certain brands had so much success for so many years that to pursue incremental growth, you know, it wasn't going to happen on the top line. So it came through cost cuts. And one of the areas I'm intrigued by is you look at um, like uh, premium mixers, like tonics of the world. Schweppes decided that they don't want to use quinine. I might be pronouncing that wrong anymore. And so they created a synthetic chemical kind. And now you have some upstart brands that are saying, hey, we use all natural ingredients. It's pure, it's lower calorie, none of this chemical junk. And we're going to sell you what's real. And so the brand may not have, the brand in this case being Schweppes, may not have thought about the consequences of these cost cuts by taking for granted their competitive position and the distribution they'd won through many years of that level of prestige. Um, but there's opportunity to create a brand and a new halo around approaching it from a different angle. Um, so on the one end, I think those, those legacy brands who took for granted their position in the market and focused too much on optimizing for bottom line instead of driving their product forward and maintaining a connection with uh, what's important today in the world, those brands are going to have trouble. And those that you know kept moving things forward, I think, um, you know, will, will have a pretty important role to play. Um, but yeah, I, I largely agree. I think there's just a little room for nuance and how that plays out from here. Yeah, there's a ton of room for nuance. And to be clear, I don't know that I even really believe that there's a clear path as to how this is going to play out, other than to say that I think a lot of the things that I used to take for granted might not apply anymore. So to give you an example on your comment about quality, which I agree, this is one of the key points I'm trying to make is that people used to rely on brands, particularly in consumer goods and, and food they used to rely on, on big, known, trusted brands, particularly brands that would buy their shelf space or use a lot of advertising as a, as a proxy for quality because that was smart. Like for, from the customer's perspective, that made sense. And I remember Buffett's very famous comment about Wrigley chewing gum, which was, you know, you're going to put this thing in your mouth and chew on it. And you're not going to take a Wrigley's chewing gum that you know the quality is good, you know the taste is there, and it costs 10 cents a stick. You're not going to trade down for some no-name brand because it's cost eight cents a stick. And I just don't think that's true anymore because there's so much quality out there. There's so few horror stories and bad tales and so much information available, right? If you're genuinely curious about it and worried about the quality, the, the search costs are close to zero, right? I mean, the, the world's information is literally at your fingertips in your pocket 24 hours a day. So that to me just seems to be completely out the window. Whereas on the flip side, I agree. I think people are always going to spend money as a way to show off to other people. That's just kind of hardwired into human nature to a certain extent. And so the landscape may shift a little bit, right? And this is where I would potentially, I, I guess I'd always be nervous about luxury goods and fashions just changing because I can't predict fashion very well. But I think the overall trend there will hold, will hold way more stable than the quality and search end of the spectrum, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think it was um, Sean Stannard Stockton of Ensemble Capital who wrote uh, a few really good uh, blog posts about uh, brands, uh, it, you know, today and kind of really drawing the distinction between search brands uh, and identity brands and how, um, you know, identity brands do have an opportunity to continue to be very successful, whereas search brands are are in trouble unless they reinvent themselves in some way. And I think, you know, as uh, Elliot also points out, there's just a lot um, that's emerged in terms of how companies um, can do business online uh, in, 
you know, performance uh, as well as brand advertising. Uh, and so that uh, has an impact, or if you think about um, what reviews have done, right? Um, Amazon reviews, Airbnb has reviews, um, Booking has reviews, so many sites have reviews and reviews really serve a function that search brands used to serve. Um, that's why, you know, protecting the integrity of those reviews is so important. And, uh, you know, reviews on Amazon, for example, have been gamed and continue to be gamed. And, and Amazon is trying to prevent that, uh, obviously. So, um, you know, search brands um, take the mattress space or, um, you know, Gillette as well. Uh, you've had so many uh, new brands emerge, uh, and some of them are struggling now. You know that it's also not a foregone conclusion that the challenger brands are going to be successful. I mean, just For look sure. at just look yeah. at Casper and uh, where that right. company uh, has traded recently. Um, and I think um, another. Uh, point for me is kind of is a brand more generic versus truly unique and sometimes it's good to have a polarization of a brand you know it's good to have people hate you if that means some people love you and 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 those who love you are going to be buying your brand uh, at a premium um, you know generic brands to me it's like if you think about printers HP, Brother, Canon, I really don't care. <laughs> you know, um, I'm not going to have loyalty to any of those brands. Um, when it comes to autos, I think on the high end, um, there you can bring that identity factor into play with a Ferrari or a Porsche or Lamborghini brand or even Tesla. Uh, whereas at the lower end, it's really difficult, like a Fiat, let's say. Um, one interesting thing that I kind of thought about in, in the food space is when um, people started becoming more conscious of organic foods, right? Um, maybe that emerged like 10 years ago or so, uh, and it's become a huge trend, obviously. But in that beginning, um, when, you know, I saw that USDA organic um, stamp on a product, that in a way um, was almost like a brand or, or a replacement for a brand. So you could have it really provided an opening, I thought, for upstart brands uh, to take on incumbent food companies where, you know, if you had that USDA organic uh, label, even though your brand may not be as well known, a lot of consumers were going to choose you over an incumbent food company product uh, because um, they liked the fact that it was organic. And one other thing, just uh, generally, I think if you look at uh, things internationally, I do believe that Western brands continue to hold a lot of um, aspirational appeal in emerging markets still versus, um, let's say, their locally uh, grown brands. Um, and, you know, that might continue for a while. So even though some Western brands may not do as well uh, in their you know, domestic markets anymore, um, some of them still have really big uh, global opportunities. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I hadn't thought about that, but you're exactly right. And I think that's been true, been proven true over the past several years and even a couple of decades about Western brands really hanging on by continuing to do well in their international markets, even as they start to slowly fade in their domestic markets. And I, I agree that could continue for quite a while. And I, I think that's true even across so-called Western brands, right? I mean, there's just, you know, a certain sub subsegment of investors or, or consumers, I guess, that are going to always prefer a good because it's international, foreign, aspirational, associated with something cool that's not local, right? I think that'll definitely continue uh, more or less as it had. I mean, two other quick points that I want to bring up that I think are just fascinating that, that I don't think would have ever existed until the last, say, five years, 10 years. And I think they'll probably continue, but uh, who knows? I mean, recent phenomena can go away quickly too. One is the idea of political brands where these companies are very intentionally starting up and, and aligning themselves with one political party or another, at least in the US, where the whole idea is just to alienate the other side as much as possible. It's sort of like 
a negative marketing strategy where you're going to win by being as you know polar opposite and obnoxious to the other side as you possibly can. I mean, it would have been unfathomable in historic historical marketing and advertising worlds to ever think like, oh, I'm going to get ahead by trying intentionally to alienate some huge chunk of America, but that's definitely happening now and companies are having success doing it. And maybe it leads to more fragmentation, but it's it's definitely happening. The other that's somewhat related is the concept of a startup brand that's really built to be sold. So it's probably never been easier to start a niche food company, apparel company, any sort of physical good with the whole idea that you're just going to get to some sort of scale and sell it to one of the big guys. Right. And so as a venture capital, even early mid-stage private equity investor, that could work great. I mean, you're definitely going to have some flops, like you mentioned. There's there's plenty in the mattress and sleep space right now for whatever reason. Um, but it seems like a pretty attractive strategy that's been more than viable in, in the recent past and will, will probably continue to be so, at least so long as the big guys feel threatened and starved for top line and they're just going to go out and look to acquire that growth. I think that'll probably continue as well. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the startup point again, because you had said that up top, and I thought it was a really good one that was worth addressing. And I think it matters on like multiple dimensions. You know, first is the idea that when startup costs for something go down, i.e., barriers to entry, like everything that's there is worth a little less in its own right. Like a big part of why some of these brands had such prestige is there was no barrier, there, there were formidable barriers to entry. Like, it was impossible to crack the supermarket shelves of the average American store. And so therefore, you know, having a brand was incredibly valuable and it helped you search and find. But now with something like Shopify, where anyone could create a store with basically no tech costs, no distribution costs for the most part, or that your customers pay through shipping, or you could use, uh, you know, fulfilled by Amazon, like these things have drastically reduced the the startup costs. And so I think that's a really interesting point um, because not just can you build something to sell, but you could also just, you know, whittle away at bigger players with much more ease. And, you know, I think that really matters. And I think it's interesting to explore the tools that have enabled that and facilitated it. Interesting to think about how different the world is having the web um, as your kind of intermediary and what that means in terms of like where the key profit pools lie in distribution. And so, you know, you look at a lot of these companies that relied on, on their brand and relied on their presence. Um, those might be as at risk as the prestige ones. But I guess, yeah, and you know, John, the point about American brands having considerable cachet abroad, they have plenty of them still do here. Um, and I do think there's something to be said about certain levels of affinity, certain behavioral forces that attract people to given brands. There are certain kinds of brands that by virtue of where they are and how much money they make are able to establish a degree of product differentiation. But then you know, I think what one thing that's maybe not said and one wrinkle I'd try to add is that brands that are inherently product-led as opposed to brand-led and companies that are inherently product-led where the emphasis is on intensely on quality and satisfying customers, where that's the association of the brand, I, I think that's the key source of staying power more so than anything else. And that's the key source of, you know, fighting incumbents to be product led. And I think the world is increasingly turning to product led and you're probably better off investing a little more in making your product that much better than you are in giving your brand a little more halo with uh, marketing dollars. Yeah, I totally agree. That's a great point. I should have put it that way sort of in the intro part, which is just that these, I think a part of what led so many of these big legacy brands to be so easily attacked when the internet lowered search costs and lowered marketing costs and made information so ubiquitous was that the companies had in fact over-invested in the brand, quote unquote, and not invested enough in the product. So I think you're totally right. That's probably a third distinction I should make was where the company has any sort of scale and is willing to continue to reinvest in the product itself 
right? Because even in the Gillette example, it's actually, I, I tried several of them and the Costco Kirkland razors weren't quite as good as the Gillette razors by any stretch. It's actually quite a bit harder to make something as seemingly simple as a razor than you would ever think. And Gillette did it better, but where they could have continued to do even more is instead of buying the naming rights for the New England Patriots football stadium, they could have made the razors cheaper, right? They could have invested in a product-led investment cycle instead of a brand-led investment cycle, right? With all the marketing and advertising dollars that they were throwing at the problem instead of going at it the other way. So I think that's a fascinating distinction to make. And you know, Gillette did invest in some product stuff. It's like, let's add a fourth blade and a fifth blade. Oh, they, like, they did. No, they did. That's right. They just need to do point, more think of about that. it from a different angle, right? I think, think about, people clearly think about how much harder it would be to attack them if they invested in a fourth blade and best in class manufacturing and distribution and then said, you know what, instead of raising price to cover next year's marketing budget, we're going to keep the marketing budget flat or cut the marketing budget and cut prices instead. Right. I mean, if the margin's not there to attack, nobody's going to be able to go after them from day one. Right. It's such a simple thing. And it gets back to why companies like Costco and Amazon are so successful. It's like where there is a brand and a low cost advantage, that's almost impossible to overcome. Where there's just a brand that's being propped up by all sorts of fat and bloat bureaucracy underneath it, it's much easier to attack. Yeah. And I feel like in this example of Gillette, I mean, at some point you have the closest shave, like stop adding more stuff to the product. Well, there's that too. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's the product is good enough. You know, you're not going to innovate on the product anymore. And that gets to where there's lots of, there's lots of things like that. I mean, food companies, for example, right? If you have a winning flavor, a winning recipe or winning product of any kind, yeah, the things you should invest in then are making it ubiquitous, making it easily available, investing in distribution and scale and reach, and then lowering the price to make it more accessible and more affordable to people and really pushing your scale advantage instead of saying, no, let's hire a bunch of people in the advertising department and put our name on a sports stadium and do it that way. I mean, that just seems totally backwards to me. Absolutely. Great discussion, guys. Um, Elliot, let's uh, move on to you. Okay. Yeah. I mean, if you're listening, you probably have some inkling of a clue that I like Twitter and I've been, you know, talking about this stuck for quite a bit. So I figured a lot's happened and it's probably worth revisiting Twitter. Um, and not so much Twitter itself, but what's happened in the last uh, week and a half, maybe call it a uh, month and a half because the stocks got entrounced and then as we uh, were starting work on the Monday morning after Thanksgiving weekend, there was a breaking news report from uh, David Faber on CNBC that Jack Dorsey was resigning. And there was no immediate word on what succession would look like. And you know, I'll skip telling the story from there, but Jack's gone. And surprisingly, the uh, successor was named uh, to be the CTO Parag Agrawal. And I think you know, when many people contemplated what internal succession might look like, they thought Kayvon Bakepour would be the uh, candidate. However, there were concerns that he's, you know, on the lower end of his 30s, maybe even 30, that he was a little too uh, raw to have gotten the opportunity. But Parag now becomes, I think, the single youngest CEO in the S&P 500, uh, narrowly beating out Mark Zuckerberg for that honor uh, or distinction or whatever you want to call it. Um, and, you know, I think there's a lot of questions people have around well, why did Jack leave, right? He says he left and, you know, this is part of his natural succession and he appointed, he was involved in the process and board unanimously voted on uh, who would be CEO and that simultaneously you have a new chairman of the board. Um, so Patrick Pichette, who had been there, uh, gave way to um, Brett Taylor. So Google's um, old CFO has given the reins to a guy who the day after this news was named Salesforce co-CEO and leaves one to wonder whether they asked Brett if he'd be CEO of of Twitter and instead he used that to push some leverage with Mark Benioff and be like, give me the CEO job here too. Um, Who knows, right? There's a lot of conjecture, a lot of speculation. There's not really much out there about it. Um, I think everyone's got their own story. I think one of the things that stands out is 
you know, I, I try to wrap my head around why this happened and why did it come to this? And, you know, when Twitter started the year, um, they were, they were different than the talking about brand, right? They were predominantly a brand advertising platform in contrast to Facebook and increasingly Snap and Pinterest who could do performance. And so Twitter's benefits were very different out of the events of COVID. They actually suffered because events are key parts uh, to drive revenues, to drive brand moments for spend on the platform. And so last year's revenues didn't jump, but they started to have a pretty good year this year with the resumption of some elements of normal life. And so they came into the year in a position of strength. They announced an investor day. The investor day went very well. They put out two targets. One was a revenue target for 2023, year, you know, for the full year 2023 of $7.5 billion. And the other was a user target. They call it monetizable DAUs. I'll call it MDAOs from here of 315 million users. And you know, since that day, not a single person believed the MDAO target. On revenues, they came into the year with consensus expectation for 2023 of $5.1 billion in revenue. That after the investor day went to $7 billion. So people didn't believe they'd exactly get there. In July of this year, they finally started believing that the revenue target was achievable. However, the MDAO target became increasingly uh, challenging because even as they suggested at the investor day, they wouldn't be at the run rate of 10 million sequential users, like per quarter users added to get to the target, the rate that was necessary. So you'd go from having needed a 10 million rate to after the Q3 report, having to need nearly a 12 million rate per quarter. Um, now, this contrasts with what I thought was a really good user acceleration. They had been effectively stagnant heading into 2019. And my thesis was that out of that period, the core inertia of the platform had risen to six to $7 million per quarter ads. And that would have taken you to spitball, spitting distance of 300 million in the same time frame. And I was assuming I was working with a pretty similar revenue number. And actually that 5 billion in 2023, in March, 2020, when I did one of uh, John's MOI talks, I was you know pounding the table that I thought by you know 2022, they could get to that $5 billion number. Um, and sure enough, they're gonna, they're gonna get there this year. Um, for me at the time in March, 2020, we were looking at peak uncertainty, like what things would look like. Um, and so one of the things I struggle with is if you look objectively at the company, people by and large think they're in a much better place than when they started the year, but the stock's down a lot. And I think it's because they effectively tied their fates to this MDAU target and it became the end all be all in the most recent space that I hosted with Ned Siegel alongside uh, Bill Brewster. Um, just about every question was about like MDAOs, like a million different iterations of how are you possibly going to achieve this and why do you put this out there? And so, you know, it, it keeps the company from talking about things that are actually working, that are actually going well, um, like the revenue. And I think, you know, in Jack's, in, not in Jack's, in, in Twitter's standstill agreement with Elliott Management, who I think was a key player behind this, who, you know, in initial reports, obviously wanted Jack to be out. Um, they talked about achieving this 20% annualized increase in the user base. And that's where they came up with the 315 number from effectively when they created that standstill agreement. And, you know, I think if there was a reason why Jack's no longer CEO, that's it. That's exactly it. Now, as for Parag, I think uh, it's very hard to know exactly what to think. Um, there was a conference that he did uh, where he and uh, Melissa Bind, who's the... Um, who's kind of his colleague over at, um, uh, what's the name of the company? It's um, at, at Splunk. Um, she's like, not the CTO, but the head engineer at Splunk. Uh, there's a great one-on-one -on -one conversation with them where they ask questions with one another. And I think Parag showed himself to be incredibly inquisitive. And so the pieces of Scuttlebutt that I picked up are that he's incredibly smart, he's pragmatic, he's a long-term thinker. And one of the important ones was you know, some people are calling him a Jack Lackey, that he was like very much in Jack's corner and Jack picked him. And that's part of why they were able to go forward like this. But he was also known as one of the few people who is capable of changing Jack's minds. And I'm obviously speculating here. I think part of that has to be his ability to really synthesize and ask incisive questions on key issues. And so, 
you know, they say that the strategy is going to be the same. Ned today was at a conference with uh, Bank of America, and he said that this was about having done succession planning, which was also part of the standstill agreement. And that was who internally was identified as the figure to take the lead. And, you know, that's where it is. That's where things are today. But when I think about Twitter and the platform itself, one of the things that keeps coming to mind is that no matter what people do to it, the platform keeps chugging along with users. Like the experience of the core users, they're such lock-in, they're such a unique product, they're such a unique moat, and it's a strategically significant asset. And one of my fears is that with what's happened to the stock price, and by the way, Twitter stock is not alone. Like I don't think Twitter stock is down just because of the MDAO thing. I think the air has been sucked out of a lot of the SMIDCAP internet space. I think Jay Modest Proposal had a tweet showing JP Morgan's coverage of the internet space, 44 companies. And the spread between the average large uh, ultra cap and uh, SMID cap was a 55% performance gap on the year. And over three-fourths of the names in their coverage were actually down year-to-date in a year when the S&P and the NASDAQ indices are up over 20%. Like I think there's not much that Twitter could have necessarily done to separate their fate from this group. Yet, you know, this is this is where things end up. And so my fear here is that the valuation becomes so damn reasonable in most objective ways to look at it. The company is now in play and they're strategically significant. And I hope there's no like take under scenario from this. But anyway, that's, you know, my fear and it's speculative. But I um, do think there's something interesting to be said about having a focused CEO, a CEO who's technical, a CEO who's known to have been someone who worked on on projects uh, that were key in bringing together people from different divisions within the company and understanding the objectives of each to build one cohesive underlying technology infrastructure. So that's where um, optimistic, this may have been an interesting choice, an outsider choice. Um, And we'll see what happens from here. I'm curious what you guys think. I know you've used Twitter. You have some thoughts on Twitter. um, And I know you also have thoughts on governance. So I think there could be some interesting angles here. Yeah. So, I mean, I've said this many times before. I have a distinct love-hate relationship with Twitter and I I don't have a dog in the fight in the stock. So take this for whatever it's worth. I've never quite understood. I mean, it's not that I think you couldn't have a CEO running multiple companies. I mean, in a lot of ways, the CEOs of companies that have disparate businesses all reporting up to him or her are doing the same thing. So that's not the part that really bothers me. The part that bothers me was I think just people internally made it pretty clear that they didn't know who was calling the shots and when. And I found it completely fascinating last year when uh, the capital riot happened and the company was having a very existential debate about whether to ban Trump from its services. And for something as important as that, I just find it impossible to believe that the co-founder and CEO is going to pass the buck on that type of decision. But I believe Jack was like on an island somewhere and passed the decision off to his lieutenants, which I just find beyond bizarre. And that apparently is the way the company was run for a long time. I'm generally a big fan of decentralized decision-making, but this seems to take it a a bit too far. And I I apologize for getting the the source of this, but I heard recently a fascinating comment that uh, I can't remember. It was a podcast of some kind. So I really apologize for getting it wrong. But the basic premise of it was, is, you know, if you think that people lose their prior alliance, their fanboy status for an unseated political figure or a sports hero or a coach that's fallen from grace, you should be inside the boardroom for a CEO that gets thrown out because the board will support the CEO through, you know, all sorts of business debacles and personal issues and whatever, right up until the minute that the CEO leaves or is forced out. And then the knives come out and the CEO just gets absolutely skewered and thrown to the wolves. And I think that's what you're seeing right now. I mean, in this conference that the CFO Ned Siegel was at today, on Twitter's own investor relations Twitter account, they're talking about how we can mo- we can now move faster and execute better. We'll focus on the same goals, metrics, and work, but we believe Parag can help us make decisions faster and be more clear about where decision-making sits. I mean, that's pretty damning. And somehow that doesn't seem to be getting all that much attention right now. At least it's, it was fairly recently. It was within an hour or two ago. But um, 
I mean, I think that's pretty clear. And I think you're going to see a lot of people uh, suddenly pipe up about how bad it was under the previous regime. So we'll, we'll have to see where it goes from here. But uh, the whole thing is certainly kind of a head scratcher, in, in my opinion. One thing I'm wondering about is if Jack was indeed pushed out or, you know, resigned at, due to some pressure from the board, why the stock has reacted so poorly? I mean, if the kind of the major investors got what they wanted, presumably, you know, the stock could have reacted the other way. Well, I think part of that, I, I've been trying to wrap my head around this. And the two reasons I've come up with are one, um, it was done in very sloppy fashion. And so people are left wondering, like, why? And so there's no clear narrative behind it. And there was no uh, conference call the day of. Parag's yet to make his first appearance. Jack hasn't said anything. So I think we're six days away from Parag actually speaking. Um, so you're working with a vacuum. And number two is that I think it, the, the reins went to an unknown entity. There are very few public appearances that Parag has made. There's very little about what he believes or doesn't believe. Um, you can mine his old tweets and find some stuff uh, that's suggestive of how he thinks. And, you know, there's obviously, I think, a misinterpreted old tweet that's being presented as something worse than it is. But, you know, I, I think having an unknown entity and not having clarity and not having an effort, you know, they've labeled themselves the most transparent company in the world, uh, not having an effort to actually shed some light and give a story behind it amidst, you know, the stock's not down any more or less than its peer group. So the tide's just going out and everything around it. Uh, as the year is coming to end and people don't want to buy into like new sloppy stories, and you probably have some people who are sitting on a pretty considerable tax loss who are like, well, maybe I'll just crystallize this loss and revisit next year. Um, I think that's tough, but it did open up 11%. And the first reflex was Jack's gone, you know, giddy up. Um, until you know it, it, it appeared a far more dramatic situation than was initially uh, than people initially believed. Um, so that that's tough. Yeah, and and I just on Parag, you know, you mentioned he's not really a known quantity. I mean, it's almost has the feel of an interim CEO. I mean, I hate to say it, but it kind of gives credence to this fear, Elliot, that you mentioned, or this risk that Twitter might be in play and, and there could be a take under of some kind um, because, yeah, the CEO is not someone that would immediately kind of excite uh, Wall Street, I guess. Yeah, you know, I mean, there have been all kinds of outside names who you would have thought were possible. You could have imagined they'd announce Jack stepping aside, say it's happening, you know, in two months, not in two hours. And they're going to run a process and do a thorough search. And if not Jack staying for that, have at least some sort of interim, some truly named interim figure. That's why I don't think it's interim, because I, I do feel like had they done it that way, they would have said as much and said, we're undergoing a search, though it very well may be interim in the way you suggest, where the board's far more focused. You know, Elliot has been known not me, Elliot, the Elliot with two T's, the activist who's still involved there in a pretty big way, despite having given up their board seat. They've been known to push companies who don't immediately get the results they want in both execution and in the market to sell themselves. And, you know, it's a, like I was saying, unique asset. And it's now, you know, trading for less than four times that 2023 sales number that looks increasingly achievable. So that's something that might be interesting to a lot of different people. Um, that that's a fear of mine for sure. Yeah, I I mean it. It clearly wasn't handled in a way that a lot of people would have liked if they could have pre-planned this, right? So I think it's almost impossible from the outside to know exactly how it went down. But I think the results and the things that have been said, and even more importantly, things that haven't been said, are pretty clear. So. I don't know what the implications are, uh, particularly as it pertains to whether this is a placeholder kind of arrangement at senior management or whatever. I mean, I, I will say, I think it's notable that 
Jack Dorsey staying on the board through the next annual meeting in the next election. So uh, maybe that was a compromise, maybe not, but um, I think the writing's pretty clear on the wall that he was no longer, uh, that he lost the confidence of the board more or less, right? Yeah. Yeah. Let's make that very clear. I think he was fired. I think he was, um, you know, kind of whether or not he says that this was on his own terms and he left ego aside and he's doing this for the best of the company uh, and that his time had come, I think I, I do. I think that should be said. I think he was fired. Yeah, right. I mean, those those things are almost always said, right? I mean, you know, it's just like in in the sports world, right? I mean, we've seen this recently this week too. I mean, every coach says, "I would never consider leaving this wonderful team," right up to the hour in which they sign a new contract with another team. So they're like, "Oh, I'm stepping aside to put the company first for the better of." the company itself and all the wonderful employees like that's, or I'm going to go spend more time with my family or whatever. Like those are the most empty words ever spoken by a human. So I don't put any faith in that, but um, you know, I, I think it would be unusual to say the least for the CFO to say on the record that they ran a succession process and that the CEO they've now named was the identified candidate all along. Right. I think that's probably true. So Right. I would think so. I would have to think so. And, you know, to add to one of the interesting wrinkles of the drama behind this all, um, it was a few months ago, maybe six months ago, Jack said something to the effect of Bitcoin's his most important life calling. And they're like, wait, you're CEO of two companies. And two days after leaving Twitter, was it two days or one? Two days after leaving Twitter, he announces they're changing the name of Square to Block uh, to more effectively capture their ambitions and aspirations and Bitcoin and the fact that there are multiple companies under one umbrella, multiple offerings under one umbrella. Um, so it does seem like he had some uh, bones to pick in that too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, drama, wow. drama all around. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm sure this is completely wrong, but I'll, it's, it's kind of funny to me that, you know, if they renamed um, Square, blocks and what if twitter becomes one of the blocks <laughs> that is absolutely one of the things i'd muse about with jack leaving and leaving the board because you know i someone i know called it squitter right <laughs> square twitter as a potential company and this whole idea of a super app and you look at paypal having recently tried to buy pinterest and there's some pretty a lot of people hated it, let's be honest. And I, you know, I, I kind of saw the rationale and saw the tea leaves from what Dan Schulman had said for a while. Um, but you know, there is no uh, like Western world, like China has these super apps. There's no Western US equivalent um, in a lot of ways. And were Jack to want to unite the companies, he can't make a bid as Square CEO to buy Twitter at the same time. Like you just can't do that. I don't know how he'd be able to recuse himself and kind of like make that happen uh, without having some other sorts of weirdness. So Tesla bought solar city and found a way to get it done. So I think he could probably find a way. He's not as cavalier and pushing around like what's right and wrong. I think he's got a strong moral calibration in that sense. Yeah, No, maybe, maybe you're right. But I'm just saying if he wanted to, he could find a way. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's true. But Wait, was Musk CEO of uh, Solar City at the time? I don't think he was CEO at the time, but the conflicts were. I mean, I yeah, remember that, actually. I mean, it's a good question. I have to look it up, but I don't the, think the he conflicts was CEO. Were I think that's a big difference. Well, yeah, but I mean, he was the controlling shareholder, and his family was involved. So, I mean, the implications were pretty similar. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty gross, but I, I think it would be impossible for him to do it as CEO. No, he just accused him. He just recuse himself. Those my point, right? And like when you recuse yourself from a, you know, process like that, I mean, it's always just kind of a show, right? I mean, it doesn't change the implications. I mean, these are hand, particularly in a company like that. These are your hand-picked directors. They're going to do what you want. Yep. But yep. you know, the other thing is, I mean, we still have s- some very smart activist investors involved here. Elliot with two T's, as well as Silver Lake, and you know. I, I have seen it happen in the past where if someone wanted to make a bid for a company or put it in play, they would leave the board. And, you know, so Elliot with two T's having left the board, you know, could be involved in something as well. But this is 
probably way too much speculation. <laughs> I, I would yep. just I would just say, um, you know, that I as as an investor would just kind of keep the 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 actual fundamentals in mind here and the fact that Twitter is valued at some thirty five billion now. Thirty five billion. I mean, that is an order of magnitude less than companies um, that you know don't have the kind of clout that Twitter has. It is a unique asset. I think it's doing very well with users. And you know they they've started pretty well on this monetization um, path, I would say. And so, to me, actually, this has been an opportunity. You know, the stock getting hit uh, in this way has been has been an opportunity to actually um, own more of it. I think the real opportunity here is to put Elliot with one T on the board and let him fix all of this. <laughs> I don't need another job. I'm pretty content. All right. Well, but, you know, big opportunity I, there. Yeah, I'm <laughs> I'm with you, John, though. I do think it's an incredible opportunity here. I think it's really interesting to just feel that two years out, people expect 50% more revenue out of this company than they did just 11 months ago. And yet sentiment couldn't possibly be worse on the company. And there are people out there saying, no, 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 they have a monetization problem. It's like, well, they did, but it's getting increasingly better on the monetization front. Like if you believed they had a problem before, you can't believe they've had it to the same extent. And I think that's part of the problem with Twitter in general. There's this negative perception about them where people say like, hey, look, they're only at their IPO price and they IPO'd seven years ago. What a mess. And instead of inverting that and saying, holy cow, they IPO'd at way too high a price. And it was really hard to ever achieve those ambitions in any near time frame. And yes, there were some mistakes along the way, but they've absolutely um, been built and geared in an entirely different fashion today. And they have some really good leaders and people in charge, like the fact that Kayvon uh, is running and leading product. Um, Dantley Davis, who was featured negatively in the New York Times and positively in Fast Company, where you have this contrasting image of how he's shaken up Twitter's culture and made it performance-driven rather than you know just being merely nice, which I think Wall Street substitutes with soft when Twitter says stuff like, we want to be a nice company. They say soft, and it's like Dantley's not soft. He's made it a performance culture. And Kayvon's driven by performance and getting results and building good product. Like it's in a very different place. And then you read about Parag's work on the first rebuilding the user stack and having made considerable progress there. That's what got him the CTO job from having been, you know, something just an, just merely an engineer there. And then having led the ad server rebuilds. Like this is a very different company with a very different foundation and architecture than it had before. You know, I really fundamentally believe that narrative. Um, the market doesn't, but you know, only time will tell at this point. And, and and sentiment is so bad that it's almost become a meme, you know, like, oh, only Twitter would find a way to screw that up. And like, oh, yeah, it's Twitter. Of course, they screwed it up. I mean, people are not thinking rationally about the inflection point. And, uh, and, and it's kind of fashionable to beat up on Twitter. You know, like to actually say, hey, wait a minute, that's that's the rear view mirror, but things are actually changing. People say, well, you know, 10 times in the past, they haven't changed. Well, maybe the 11th time they will. And uh, and you got to just look at the facts. You know, people have turned this too much into a negative meme where, yeah, it's I, I, I think it's a really interesting setup here. But you know, not not investment advice. Everybody do your own work. Be responsible for your own decisions. And let's not forget where people go to complain about this, right? So I think that's, you know, the irony is lost on some of these people that, you know, it's a meme on Twitter itself, very meta in this world. Um, and yeah, no, I, I think it's really hard um, to get people to believe changes happened in a lot of different contexts. And, you know, you don't believe change until it's obvious way in the rear view mirror. And when it's happening, it's, you know, very easy to kind of just 
I don't know. I don't want to say fall into the trap because some people would say it's a trap to believe change is happening after it's happened so many times. But it, it's very easy to believe that what's what's past is present, um, even if there are a lot of signs that it's different. Um, so that's my belief, and I'm sticking to it at this point. All right. Well, I think uh, probably not much to add there uh, right now. Uh, certainly a very interesting week at Twitter. And I think we'll just have to wait and let things uh, play out over the next uh, year or two. Uh, and I'm sure we'll revisit uh, in the meantime. Thanks, uh, Phil and Elliot, for another great discussion. And thank you all for listening. Goodbye for now. Thank you for listening to This Week in Intelligent Investing, brought to you exclusively by MOI Global, the research-driven membership organization. Learn more at moiglobal.com.